This is the Daily Signal Podcast for Thursday, April 6th. I'm Fred Lucas. And I'm Jared Stepman. Jared was in New York City on Tuesday for the Donald Trump arraignment. He was there for the big circus. And today we're going to talk about some historical aspects. This does not have a historical parallel, uh, to, to be certain. Uh, it's unprecedented that a former president would be indicted on criminal charges. However, there have been some very high-profile cases, uh, some investigations against setting presidents, against former presidents, and against some former vice presidents, and that's something we're going to talk about today. Yeah, thanks, thanks Fred, for, for the introduction. As you said, it was uh, definitely an unprecedented uh, moment that happened yesterday. But you know what we're going to talk about a little bit is uh, some individuals who've been running for president, who've been under investigation, uh, I think uh, a very big one actually happened in the 20th century, uh, and and maybe you could set that up for us a little bit, Fred, and, and talk about uh, Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate for president. Yeah, yeah, that's something uh, we had a piece about that in the Daily Signal uh, a couple of days ago, actually. The, uh, the first and so far only president to run a campaign from a prison cell. Uh, Eugene Debs had been the uh, Socialist Party candidate uh, pretty much since 1900 uh, through 1920, and he, he managed actually to get 6% of the vote in the uh, multi-candidate race of uh, 1912. He came back uh, in 1920 to run again, uh, but this time, uh, under the Wilson administration, uh, he had been charged uh, with sedition uh, because he spoke out against America's involvement in World War One. And so, uh, but he actually had quite a bit of support. He was a very good orator. Uh, so, but so he was handicapped in that aspect. He couldn't go out and do these rip roaring speeches. Uh, however, he uh, wrote weekly campaign statements. Those were published by uh, a wire service, United Press Wire Service, at the time. And he was a very well-known figure, even though he was a third party. He was a perennial candidate, so people came to know him. He, he was sort of popular even among non-socialists because he had sort of a, a big personality. And um, he ended up getting about a million votes. That's uh, almost 4% of the vote in 1920. And and um, actually when Warren Harding came into office, he ended up pardoning him. Uh, but, but this is an example and the only example of a presidential candidate uh, running a campaign from behind bars. And now that sort of presents the possibility if Trump is convicted in this case or in one of the other cases, what could potentially happen if if, if, uh, if he runs a campaign under conviction? Yeah, it, it is interesting because, of course, in the case of Debs, his campaign was much more in the line of, to, to I suppose, pick a recent candidate, you'd think of maybe a, a more of a Ralph Nader type. Who's yeah, running, or Bernie uh, Sanders. More of a third, or Bernie <laughs> yeah, Sanders, yeah, 30, who's running close, something yeah. closer to a, yeah. a third-party campaign rather than being one of the major parties on the ticket. Mm -hmm. So there was never much of a, a chance that Debs was actually going to win the 1920 uh, election. Um, even if I think some, to a, to a large extent, and I think many even recognize those who weren't certainly were not supportive of his his socialist platform that what had been done to him uh, was maybe a bit much, especially that yeah. he was charged under the Sedition Act at the time for arguing essentially for dodging the draft. There was a huge draft that took place in World War One. I. I think a little uh, remembered historical fact is that, that, that actually there were more people 
dodging the draft in World War One than there were the Vietnam War. I know the Vietnam War gets a lot of That's, uh, publicity for that, but this was actually a very big issue at the time. Woodrow Wilson hated Debs. His administration mm-hmm. hated Debs. They wanted to go after him. They wanted to put him in jail. Uh, they did so using the, the power of the federal government and wouldn't let up. They would not commute his sentence. Uh, it took uh, it took a Republican president, as you said, Warren G. Mm-hmm. Harding, who actually, I believe, invited Debs to the White yes, House after. I believe he, his sentence got commuted on Christmas Day, I guess a Christmas right. gift to Debs, and apparently had a conversation, which Harding, a very, I think, genial man, uh, had a nice conversation with him. Uh, I think it is very interesting, that, of course, that Harding ran on this campaign of a return to normalcy, which I think – uh, the, the Deb's commutation of his uh, his arrest, and of course he had, he had very poor health while in jail, was sort of that that desire to return to normalcy in this country, that even though Debs had been arrested, that he should be released because we wanted to see the country return to normal uh, in the 1920s. Yeah, yeah, that, that and that was part of what Harding ran on. It was the, um, yeah, as you said, return to normalcy and, and moving past the World War One era laws of Wilson. Of course, I consider Wilson kind of as close to an authoritarian president as the country's ever had, really. And uh, and the World War One was really used to kind of bludgeon political opponents, and Debs was, you know, like exhibit A in that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Uh, another case uh, I think we would we could talk about, Fred, and I, I know we discussed this before the show, which is maybe a little little deeper history, which would be the uh, the trial of of Aaron Burr, the, the vice president Aaron Burr, well, who actually uh, exactly. ended up in trial years uh, after he was vice president. But you can, can you kind of talk about that a little bit, Fred? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he's most famous for uh, uh, killing Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he didn't go to trial for that. <laughs> uh, duels were illegal at the time, but uh, um, Aaron Burr, of course, uh, you know, went on to serve out his uh, one term with Thomas Jefferson, at least. Uh, and uh, though he didn't get along very well with Jefferson, and that's a whole other story. But um, yeah, af- after being out of power, uh, and and it's often said of Aaron Burr, he was most dangerous when he's out of power. He's actually, um, but he went on to sort of uh, wanted to be an emperor uh, in, in the Louisiana territory and, and Mexico and so forth. Uh, yeah, and, and it, it, it was, and he ends up getting. Con- um, well, tried and acquitted on that point. Yeah, it, the, the whole trial was was very interesting. Of course, you know, Burr, I think there's been there's definitely been some debate among historians what exactly were his intentions in the Southwest. He went down mm-hmm. there because a lot of his popularity went down after shooting and killing the former <laughs> secretary. Right. So he wasn't so popular in New York City anymore. Uh, he went down to, to the, the Southern Territories, made a lot of friends, uh, including some very disparate ones, including Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson, a lot of people who would be political rivals in the future. Um, and the question, I, of course, revolved around what exactly was Burr doing down there? Was he trying to lop off that territory to create his own empire? Was he working with the Spanish government to try to – because, of course, much of this was Spanish territory as well. And I think what's very interesting about that case is that – the real villain in this case may have actually been General James Wilkinson. In fact, I think Theodore Roosevelt years later said he was one of the most villainous characters in American history. People think of Benedict Arnold as this major traitor uh, for years, decades even. It appears that Wilkinson was on the payroll of the Spanish government after an investigation into 
uh, Spanish national records. And it seems that it was actually Wilkinson who orchestrated much of what was happening. And in fact, doctored uh, many documents uh, in the lead up to the Burr trial, which I think is part of the reason why Burr got a eventually acquitted in this, because it looked like, well, maybe Burr was doing something uh, unseemly in the Southwest. He may have not actually been a, a traitor, and I think that's where some of the questions from the trial uh, actually came up and why they ultimately did not convict him uh, for, for treason, despite his unpopularity, despite the fact that the Jefferson administration would like to have seen him be prosecuted for that. They ultimately, uh, under, under uh, Justice John Marshall, the famous John Marshall, ultimately mm -hmm. decided to acquit him. Yeah, uh, and also, I mean, that, that was a— uh... A particular courtroom drama. I mean, uh, Burr was a good politician, and he he had some oratory in the courtroom uh, in in that case, and and that that also helped. It, it definitely he, helped, yeah. and I think it would also help too. Is that the main prosecution in this case, which I believe was John Randolph of Roanoke, who was a very popular uh, pop politician, kind of an unusual character, didn't exactly have a long legal experience. He wasn't a lawyer by trade, and I think there are definitely. Uh, I think there's a case to be made that he didn't make the case very well either uh, mm -hmm. in, in the court itself, which is, again, one of the reasons why this trial was eventually uh, – it was declared that uh, Burr was not guilty, which, of course, set a very high bar for actually prosecuting a, an American for treason. There has to be a direct connection to aiding and abetting enemies uh, in wartime, and there was no direct connection to a, a war, to – uh, Burr's actual treason, whether his intent was was to do so or not, and again, setting that very high bar for what actually constitutes treason in the United States. Yeah, and and, and it will be interesting. I mean, uh, a parallel here is that some people find, you know, at least tr certainly Trump's enemies find him to be as unpleasant as uh, people in that era would have found Burr to be. So uh, it, it will be interesting to see if uh, if a jury of peers can look at a case objectively, even if they don't like someone politically. I think that is the, the big question here, Fred. I mean, especially as we look at this this case and, and many of these cases in the past is how directly politicized this is. Is it simply uh, no man being above the law or is this uh, looking for essentially looking for a crime to prosecute somebody who is unpopular with many of you could say that the ruling class in the United States, and I think that's where the real fear here is. And certainly, you know, you could feel it when I was at the protests on Tuesday. A lot of feeling that this isn't just being done because uh, Trump broke the law; it's because Trump is Trump, and they're mm -hmm. looking for some kind of law to prosecute him, which would be, I think, uh, certainly unprecedented in American history, where you have a a, a president who has been essentially thrown in jail. Uh, for crimes, especially political crimes, uh, would certainly be unprecedented. Right. Um, while we're on the topic of VPs, uh, maybe look at the, uh, uh, you know, Burr was the most notorious vice president. Maybe look at the second most notorious vice president. That'd be Spiro Agnew. Um, and uh, the the uh, the similarities there is that, um, well, uh, there's not, there aren't a lot of similarities, but but he he that's an example of a uh, of a vice president who was uh, struck a plea deal while he was in office. And and that's rare because uh, something we that was talked about a lot during the Trump administration, uh, also during the Clinton administration, is that it's Justice Department policy not to uh, bring charges against a setting president because that 
would undermine uh, the entire executive branch, basically, and it, the elected leader's ability to exercise constitutional authority. But uh, it is a little different with a vice president. And uh, Spiro Agnew was under scrutiny by the Justice Department. This was happening the same time Watergate, the Watergate scandal was being investigated. Uh, and there was actually some open talk that Spiro Agnew might become president. Uh, of course, it as it happened, Agnew, a year after this um, winning 49 states along with Nixon, uh, ended up resigning from office as part of this plea deal for um, pleading guilty to tax evasion that, that stemmed all the way back to his time as governor of Maryland, and it was a bribery investigation. Yeah, it's very interesting, Fred, and I think it kind of brings up, you know, what kind of the the issues are, what we're dealing with now, especially with Trump, is this idea that, well, if he, he faces prosecution, and if somehow he, even though it, it looks to be that the case against him at this moment seems to be quite weak, what happens if he actually gets jailed? What happens if he runs for president? What happens if he, if he wins when he becomes president, is he going to uh, serve from a jail cell or is he going to seek office uh, to protect himself from further punishment? This, of course, is part of what brought down the, the Roman Republic when Julius Caesar decided to uh, go run for consul to, to, to avoid prosecution. I mean, I think these are very uh, big issues in the history of a republic. Uh, I, I think they're, that Americans, I think, rightly have had a system in which we've been very fortunate, in which uh, we've decided that uh, it is important not to arrest our political enemies uh, after they've they've served in office, and that has been a long tradition in this country. Uh, I think there is generally a feeling that if you go after people who had been in office, especially if it's coming from the other political party, uh, that that is a hallmark of a dysfunctional banana republic, and that it is best for the country not effectively to go after those. Uh, who've served in office, who have lost an election uh, for, for whatever reason. And I, that seems to be a longstanding precedent in this country that may have actually been changed. It seems like we are on untrodden ground here. Uh, yeah, I, and I, uh, in, in this particular case with the Trump case and Alvin Bragg, uh, what's also interesting is that it, it seems like you're bringing a federal case at the state level or by this Manhattan DA, uh, but, uh, because this would be, if it's a campaign finance violation, it would be for a federal office. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's where it gets even more complicated. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and also, I mean, what, what you were saying, and I mean, back to Debs a little bit, I mean, this is an unlikely event, but it, we're, we're in uncharted waters already. Uh, so I, I mean, if Trump were convicted and, I mean, imagine in the worst case scenario, imprisoned, and then wins the election. I mean, what does happen then? Uh, because a United States president could not pardon himself on a uh, state charge. Now, Eugene Debs said, if I win, I'll pardon myself because he was uh, charged on a federal crime, the sedition law. Uh, Trump's been charged on a state law. Yeah, and we can already see some of those issues propping up. I mean, there was a lot of negotiation even before Trump's indictment and arraignment, well, how are they going to deal with the Secret Service? Uh, and and one can even project in the future, well, how is that going to work with uh, a state versus federal authority where uh, you have a president who's who's been literally in, in prison, who, who wins office, 
Uh, is he going to call out the National Guard in his defense? Is this this, this a state going to say no? What happens next? I think these are issues that haven't been fully resolved because it is literally on unprecedented ground. We have never had this happen before. It's really, truly unprecedented ground, and it brings up a lot of uh, legal ideas and really just uh, issues of you know where power between states and where the power between the federal government begins and ends. And uh, and and really, you know, is this is this the kind of system we want? Is this the kind of system which, uh, if you are holding office, you have to be fearful that as soon as you leave office, uh, that that you you could be prosecuted for whatever you know minor or low level offenses that some some uh, judge somewhere uh, can find against you? And does that actually promote the idea? of a politician saying, well, you know, I'm just never going to leave office. I'm going to yeah. make sure that I stay in office forever, which, again, is the, the death knell of republics. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one very important example uh, that, that we do have to hit is Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton <laughs> on his way out of office one day uh, on his very last day in office, one day before George W. Bush was inaugurated. Bill Clinton uh, basically copped a plea deal with independent counsel Robert Ray. Uh, and that was uh, regarding the Monica Lewinsky case. Uh, he very likely could have faced a federal indictment over perjury or obstruction of justice in that case, which is what he was impeached for uh, by the Congress. Uh, he avoided that, and uh, Robert Ray thought it was best for the country to move on past Clinton. It was in Clinton's best interest uh, to avoid indictment, and uh, the, the deal was struck that Clinton would admit to giving misleading testimony to uh, under oath, and also he surrendered his law license. And and that was something uh, that was fairly unprecedented, too, for a president to strike a deal. Yeah, it's very interesting that, that Clinton ultimately struck a deal in that case. Of course, one could see as a, a slap on the wrist compared to a, a jail sentence that we're, that we're talking about with, with President, uh, former right. President Donald Trump. Uh, but it does go to show again. There's there's uh, a, a concerted interest for the country uh, in not putting presidents behind bars and not punishing for even if even if in in some cases where it's possible that some uh, inappropriate conduct has actually occurred. I think there's always been a hesitancy uh, to go after, especially former presidents or or generally you could say politicians because of this this image uh, that you see far too often in in countries where there isn't a, a stable line of secession where there is this appeal to bullets over ballots. And that's something that has been established in our country, that we appeal to ballots, not bullets. I thought it was very interesting uh, at the, the court uh, that, that ultimately is, is going to be trying this case of Trump. There's an actual quote from Thomas Jefferson from his first inaugural, uh, equal and exact uh, justice uh, for all. No matter what state or persuasion, and I thought that was very interesting, given the fact that many are calling this uh, a political persecution of, of a former president, and that Jefferson upheld that standard, of course, in the 1800 election, which one party replaced another party, where Jefferson's Republicans, not the modern uh, Republicans, but his party at the time, defeated the Federalists and decided that even though the Federalists had uh, prosecuted some for under the Alien Sedition Acts. The Jefferson administration would not go after his 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 opponents. That we were all Federalists, we were all Republicans, we were all Americans, and I think that that is something that we have mostly maintained in this country. And in the 
uh, over 200 years uh, of our existence. And unfortunately, it, it does feel like uh, Rubicon has been crossed a bit as far as upholding that standard going forward. And that sounds like a good note to end it on. And so that'll do it for today's episode. Uh, we do not have any show tomorrow in observance of Good Friday. Uh, we hope you all have a wonderful Easter weekend. In the meantime, if you haven't gotten a chance, be sure to check out our evening show right here in the podcast feed where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, make sure you subscribe to The Daily Signal whenever you get podcasts and help us reach more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read all your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day, and we'll be back with you at 5 p.m. for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.